Legacy code is code without automated tests. Most companies have lots of legacy code, and most developers don't like working on legacy code. Why is that? What is it that makes legacy code so unappealing and so difficult to work with? And why does a large amount of legacy code slow down an organization so severely? Andrea Goulet is the CEO of Corgibytes, a consultancy that specializes in remodeling legacy code bases. Andrea's company developed out of an observation that there are developers who actually love to work on legacy code. Since founding Corgibytes, she has become an expert on legacy code, and she's published a recent article about building technical wealth on the First Round blog. The article presents ways that companies can confront the realities of legacy code and how startups can avoid getting too much legacy code. It's really a great read, and I think this episode was a fascinating interview. I hope you enjoy it, too. Andrea Goulet is the CEO of Corgibytes. Andrea, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So your company, Corgibytes, consults with companies who need updates to their legacy code. We'll talk about Corgibytes eventually, but I want to start with just the topic of legacy code in the abstract. Why does legacy code have a negative reputation? That is such a good question. And I think part of it, it's a complex question. But um, from what I can gather, it's that for so many years, the way that projects were managed and put together was you would have the team that created them. And then after launch, you would reduce all of your staff to what's called an O&M team, so operations and maintenance and that operations and maintenance was usually a skeleton crew and the people who worked on it didn't get a lot of opportunity to expand their skill set. Really, their job was just to kind of keep this piece of software alive, but there wasn't really a lot that was being done to it, right? It wasn't constantly improving or anything like that. And so that, you know, has been 40 years of how we've developed software. And there's been a lot of kind of shame because you see almost this caste system of, you know, developers who were, you know, maintenance or, you know, testing or QA or things like that as being kind of a lesser than or not enough or not a real developer. Um, and so the idea of the or this myth of, you know, someone who is good at software is somebody who is only doing feature development has kind of emerged. And in the past, I would say probably five years, this has all been completely turned on its head because as we know, software project management is moving towards things that are, you know, agile has been a, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, but in the past five years, we've seen a move towards continuous fill in the blank, right? Continuous deployment, continuous integration, continuous, I say continuous estimating, right? The idea is that you're not ever producing just one estimate for people anymore and saying, this is what I'm going to do. Now it's about having regular conversations over time about budget. So what that's done in the software landscape is that it's completely turned the way that we think about software on its head. And the people who really like doing that operations and maintenance, um, you know, now have a place where they can have a place also in, you know, the real time and continued development of this. Um, so, you know, I think too, the way that we've talked about legacy code, um, it has been a very kind of shame driven approach. So, you know, one example is if you look at. Well, and, and sorry, not to interrupt, but and shame driven just in the sense that people who were doing a lot of software maintenance, at least in the past, were systematically underpaid. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so the idea is um, more specifically, I'm thinking when we talk about legacy code, it was seen as a, you don't want your code to become legacy. So do X thing, right? So in Michael Feathers' book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code, that thing was make sure you're, you know, wrapping tests around that. So any code that's not, that doesn't have test coverage is what he considers legacy code. And so it became this, like, if you don't do X software development practice, then your code will be legacy and that's bad, 
right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that kind of ethos and that kind of like feeling has built up over time to the point now where it's like no one wants to work on legacy applications. And that's a huge problem because there is so much work out there. Um, I read a report so, recently. So, so if- so, yeah. so if nobody if nobody wants to work on legacy code, what are the approaches that these big companies that have tons and tons of legacy code? What what are their approaches to dealing with that legacy code? Yeah, there was a great Freakonomics episode recently that that touched on this and kind of the value of maintenance. And for years, it's been kind of push it under the side, push it under the side, like stretch things out. And so that creates so many different things like security vulnerabilities, right? Um, and so now we're, we're really approaching this point in time where, where people just have to come to terms with, with how they're going to work with their legacy per- code. Because what happens is that there's so much integrated business logic into a lot of these systems, um, especially like the way I think about it is you don't get a code in a legacy state. Like you don't have software that lasts for 30, 40 years unless it's doing a job that is really important. So a lot of the legacy systems out there are doing things like running our governments, they're running our finance systems, you know, they're covering bankings, they're running safety critical systems. And so what at Corgi Bytes, we've started doing because my my business partner, after we had been in business for a few years, we saw an episode of this old house, and we and he at the end of it goes, you know, I just wish I could do that to people's software, and I was like, what do you mean? He goes, my dream job is work is fixing other people's software, and it like kind of all hit me about three or four years ago, that there is this massive need of legacy code. And then there are people like Scott who enjoy, genuinely enjoy the work of doing maintenance and modernization, but yet they feel like second-class citizens. They feel like they're not contributing. And so for me, I was like, well, we let's just make that our entire business model where all which, we which do is Which is brilliant, update. by the way, which, which <laughs> is totally brilliant because, because companies need so much maintenance and you figured out this kind of untapped aspect of the software industry that there are actually a good number of really talented engineers who want to do work on legacy systems. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if so what we've done is kind of just reframed the problem, right? So we we say now like you know, it, like I only hire really, really seasoned and, um, you know, lead developers. And it is, I mean, it's the best of the best. These are super polyglots who speak, you know, or code in 10, 15 languages. And the idea is like legacy code is really fun from an engineering standpoint because you're dealing with some of the most complex and intractable problems that are really important and meaningful to society. So all of a sudden, like, it's it's the same work, but what's happened is that we've elevated the value of that work. So instead of it just being, oh, your job is to be this skeleton crew and just, you know, you're going to be underpaid and just, you know, in the basement and no one cares about you. Now it's like, no, I have CEOs who are calling and saying, like, I need the best people in the world who can fix this type of problem and who aren't afraid to, like, dive in. You know, right? There's their special, exactly. There's special forces. They, that's exactly rather, how rather, I describe rather it. Rather than rather than some um, some derogatory term that we might have ascribed in the past. Yeah, and that's exactly how I describe it. Is um, you know we're kind of special forces who really kind of can help move past the intractability and initial inertia of working with the legacy code base. So we'll do things like, you know, we, we start out and do a technical discovery, which is pretty common across boards. But then it's like, we, we focus highest on the prioritization, the business prioritization. And so a lot of times we're saying, okay, what's, what's the problem here, right? What is the business need that you really need to have happen? Um, and, you know, from, by just taking that approach, and it's just been a very agile experience. And people ask me what kind of what flavor of agile we use. And I always say we use the manifesto and the principles. Like <laughs> I, we, we don't kind of, fla- you know, favor one, um, one specific practice over another. But, but we really are, 
are um, committed to the values and the principles of it. Well, so so speaking of principles and philosophies, you were featured in a post recently where you talked about applying philosophies around legacy code to startups, and we wouldn't naturally associate the idea of legacy code with startups because you think of startup, oh, it's something new, it's fresh. There's no legacy code here, but. A popular definition of legacy code, which you took from Michael Feathers, is this definition of code without test coverage. And that is rife in plenty of startups. There are lots of startups who, who do not have good test coverage, perhaps any test coverage. So why does that definition of legacy code make sense, and what does it say about these startups? Yeah, so I I tend to think of it as... The way I define it is that legacy code is code without communication artifacts around it, of which tests are a really important one. So I think of it kind of like an archaeological dig, where it's like, in order to figure out the context of a of a society, you need things like bones and pottery and walls of foundation. Like, there's a whole lot of things that you need in order to get a good sense of what happened here. And that's exactly what makes code in a legacy or non-legacy state. So those things can be documentation tests. They can be, you know, your scenarios that you're writing. They can be, you know, all of the um, different git commit messages, right? Like every time you run git blame, like does it just, you know, say stuff that is kind of silly or are you actually using the description fields in there to describe the rationale? Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of different things that you can use to really help other people on your team, either in the present or in the future, get an idea of what your ideas were. And so you're kind of leaving behind this trail of breadcrumbs. And what happens in the legacy state is, and especially in startups, you're moving so freaking fast, right? And like, I built a startup, I know this, right? <laughs> like, you're moving so fast that it's really hard to document things. And the other thing is you're trying to figure out, like, what is it that you're all about? So in a lot of well, situations... And, and, and sorry to interrupt you, but there's also, you have the this nexus of really uh, embedded people in the startup because they're, so they're probably highly motivated. You probably just have two or three people, so communication yep. goes really smoothly. And so it actually makes there be less pain uh, despite the fact that there's no tests, there's less documentation, just because there's so much tribal knowledge and communication is spreading really easily throughout the small organization. Exactly. Yeah. So in that scenario, it, it can feel like a waste of time to thoroughly document everything because it's like, are you just going to throw it away? You don't know. So, you know, in the kind of prototyping MVP experimentation stage where you don't really know what's going to stick in terms of the business, um, you know, it, it feels like a lot to um, to put kind of these extra parameters on them. Now, there become there comes an inflection point where like you have figured out what the market wants, like you figured out what your product is going to be, and now you're running into scalability issues. You're running into knowledge transfer issues, right? And that is where a lot of people don't take the time then. They don't really identify that that inflection point. And so things will go on and they'll, re they'll rely on tribal knowledge for so long to the point where it's like things are just kind of hard to work with. And you accumulate a lot of this kind of kind of technical debt too, where, you know, it, it may be that, you know, we do a lot of work where, you know, people build things in kind of just a big monolithic app, and then they need to break it up into microservices so that it can be more restful and, you know, consume APIs e easier. So, but it's one of these things like, did it get you to where it needs to be, right? Because my whole thing is like, do what you need to do to bring your product to market, right? And, you know, be aware of security and be aware of all of that. But it's like, you know, if you're if you're dealing with security issues, but and like being super critical of that, but you don't have any users yet, you know, it's like, are you putting your resources in the in the right place? Um, you know, really. So, so maybe prior prior to product market fit tests, maybe not so emphasized. But once you hit product market fit, they become more emphasized? It really depends on your team, right? And so like my thing is like if you've got a team of folks who like all totally get 
test-driven and behavior-driven development, they've worked together before, have at it, right? Like build, build that way. But if it's becoming, like we've seen this a lot where like the CTO will be so dogmatic about a technological practice that it impedes the business, right? And it impedes things from moving forward, um, at least in that experimentation stage. So if, if test-driven development works for you, awesome using it. I'm not, I mean, we're big fans of it. I'm not saying that, that it shouldn't be used, but, um, but the big deal here is that, you know, go with what works at the right time. Because what we see often is we see clients who have come to us and, you know, they've, the, the ones who, who grow, the ones who get funded, the ones who are, you know, achieving that really good product market fit tend to reach that inflection point and then say, wow, now it's time to clean things up, you know? And so then it's like worth going in and refactoring, but it's because you have a business driver problem, right? And so, you know, we always say, you know, follow what the business needs. Um, and we do that too, in terms of our refactoring. Like when we, when we look at our analysis tools, it's like, you know, we'll look at things like cyclomatic complexity, um, but we'll always look at metrics um, kind of in pairs. So like for us, it's like if we have, you know, something with a high cyclomatic complexity, but the churn, you know, it's, it's never touched, then it's like, well, you know, it's probably not worth spending a lot of time refactoring that because it's never used. But at the same time, if you've got something that has a high cyclomatic complexity, but then the churn is really high, then that's that's a really good indication for, okay, this is something that we're going to get a lot of business value out of because by going in and refactoring this, people are going to be more efficient. So yeah, so, this is, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. I, I was at a meetup at Uber this week and the chief architect gave a presentation and he was talking about how Uber has 1,785 services and 2,000 engineers. So there's almost one service per engineer. And the it's kind of become like an archaeological dig because some of the services they don't know exactly you know, what does this service do? Uh, how often is it used? You know, who can maintain it? Is it, it does it have test coverage? Because Uber probably is the fastest growing startup in, I don't know, maybe in history. But um, the, you know, I talked to the chief architect after he gave his, his presentation and I asked him, so what happens when some service starts screwing up and, and the person who, you know, it's been orphaned, it's some orphaned service and there's no tests around it, nobody knows how it works. What do you do? And what do you do if that's on the critical path? And what he said was, well, that actually doesn't really happen because we have the critical path really, really well understood. And only, yes. you know, it's only a smaller subset of the services. And I think that's basically what you're saying is, you know, once you have that product market fit and you've got some code that's like maybe on the side that's not doing a whole lot that maybe is accused occasionally or it's some batch processing job or something, you know, maybe you don't need all the testing around that, but you need to test the critical path, like the things that keep the customer experience reasonable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I use the metaphor of a house um, a lot because I think that's something too that everyone has lived in a house, right? If they haven't, you know, and and it makes this idea of software a little bit more tangible. So you know, with a house, the you know you you can think of the idea of technical debt as things like throwing out your trash, right? Like we need to delete code if we're not using it, right? Like delete those inline comments that don't serve, you know, purpose anymore. But people feel really afraid to delete code. Um, so it's it's making sure that we can create environments for keeping um, our code bases clean in a in a good way, just, just kind of moving forward. And those are the things that we really do is set up practices and, you know, and use tools so that we can, so that we can do that effectively. So there's kind of that maintenance part where it's like, look, this is, this is, we are no longer in a world where you build software once, release it, and then never touch it again. And the only thing you're doing is fixing bugs. We are living in a world where software is living and breathing and is constantly going to be reimagined and reworked. And so in that sense, it very much is like the house that you live in, right? You've got, you know, sometimes you've got to tear down walls. You've got to re-architect the house because, you know, you're 
uh, you, you've grown and now you need to add on a family room or something. But the idea is that what I saw regularly was that people would be told, business owners, CEOs would be told, oh, you want to remod, you know, you want to change this piece of the critical path or you want to add this piece of functionality. In order for me to do that, we're going to have to bulldoze the entire application and start from scratch. And that just makes zero sense to anybody who is outside of software. Like it just, it like, can you imagine if you had a contractor and you were like, hey, I want to remodel my kitchen. They're like, okay, cool. So the bulldozer is going to be here next week and we're going to completely rebuild the house. And you're like, that's not what I'm asking for. Like the rest of the house works fine. I just need you to, to focus on this. And it becomes this disconnect. And so what we've done is really with Scott's help for sure on the technical side, because this is his passion and this is what he loves. He's, you know, we've, we've developed a team of like people who love going in and just remodeling code bases. And so we have, we have one client where it was like, they were very much in a legacy state in terms of, you know, their, it was really hard to work with. They didn't even have a working demo and they had spent all this money. And so we came in and said, okay, what's the biggest thing? And they were like, we need a working demo, but we can't sell this project without a working demo. So it was like, okay, what do you need? And it was just you know, what are your top three priorities? And we just kept going. And now we've been doing that process and we've been doing it for a little over a year. And now that client has four paid clients. They're making money that they're able to reinvest back into the application. And it works like a greenfield application. I mean, it's got a code climate score of 3.5. We've upgraded it to Rails 4. You know, it's not like the latest, but it's a solid like B plus. And I mean, I would call it now a greenfield application. So it's the idea of, yeah, you can take these legacy kind of brownfield applications and you can turn them back into greenfield applications by sodding them with really good communication, with really good understanding of what the true business of the software is and working together. Um, and one of the big things too is eliminating the idea that people are technical or non-technical. Hmm. Now, getting back to this question of the startups, so testing is really at the root of this discussion. Testing is really what defines the definition of what is legacy code or not in our parlance here. So for a startup this still seems so hard to do adequately because, you know, speaking personally, I hate writing tests. I hate it so much. <laughs> and this this is probably why I was a horrible enterprise software engineer and I just do podcasts now because podcasts is like all Greenfield. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm good. I, and in terms of software, I'm good at making prototypes quickly, but the idea of writing automated tests for them, it makes me sick to my stomach. And if I were working at a startup, and if I were one of the first employees and I knew my area of the code base super well, maybe I would be the person who was best qualified to write those tests. How do I, I mean, is there a way to learn to love testing? For, for us who are not natural legacy code yeah. aficionados, is there a way to learn to love testing? Yeah, I think so. And um, we've had a couple of developers who came to us and you know, when they first started, they weren't big testing fans. And now it's like, oh, my God, this is amazing. So I think a lot of it comes with with your perspective. Because for me, I know when I was first introduced to it, I was like, this feels really pedantic and slow. Like, I mean, I'd love to learn more about why, like, what is it about testing that makes you feel like you don't like it? It is the fact that you know, I just sit down for a day and don't have new functionality in my application. And, and you know, I'm always like, oh, you know, I've got these things, but I want to add these five things and I could be adding these five things and instead I'm just testing the first couple things. Gotcha. Okay. So, so the way that we kind of approach it is that we never advocate really for adding tests just for adding tests, right? Um, you know, you're really adding tests to just validate that the functionality that you're building is the functionality that you intended, right? And I think that kind of gets into the the idea of behavior-driven development too, where you first write kind of a, a user story or a scenario um, and, and then just verifying that the functionality that you built is what was intended, right? So if you just kind of like go, oh, well, tests are just a tool to help me verify that. And so they, they very much can be used in terms of feature development. But if you find people like Scott who really love testing, they can take it 
a little too far and it feels for me sometimes a little slow. Um, but the way that I have learned to love testing and the way that a lot of the people on our team have learned to love testing is that it is a small psychological win, right? And so rather than thinking about testing in terms of failing, so the idea is first, you know, you kind of write a failing test um, to just verify that like the test isn't going to always pass, right? So you just, you see it red and then you work to turning it green. And it's like, wow, I did something. And so, you know, it, instead of thinking of your accomplishments in terms of feature delivery, right, it's, it's much smaller. It's like small, tiny little incremental wins. So we'll be working together for like three or four hours, kind of putting something together. And it's like, you know, we, when we write the failing test, and then sometimes it takes 20 minutes to get that passing. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer, right, depending on the nature of the problem. But it's, it's a really good feeling. I was like, yay, we got that passing. That's really cool. So if you, if you think of it in terms of just like small wins throughout the day, it can be really psychologically rewarding and empowering. Um, and, you know, and I think too, taking that approach of like, you know, testing what you touch, right? So not necessarily going in. And, and I think that goes back to like, you know, we would look at what actually is used, right? So, you know, when we do our analysis, we don't usually say, oh, well, this only has a cyclomatic complexity score that's really high. So, you know, go in and refactor that. It's like, no, next time you go in and touch it, then write some tests around it. So you're writing it in parallel to your feature, feature development. It's not a I'm going to write tests and then I'm going to write features. It really becomes a big, just, it's a part of your process. I sometimes think of it as, um, like when I was in school and learning to do math, I always liked to just like double check my answers before I submitted my work because then I was really confident that, you know, I had, I had done the right problem. And I liked the idea of just showing my work and making it a little bit more complete because it helped me just personally go through my own thought process. Um, and I think that's kind of the same thing with test-driven development, right? You're, you're creating these artifacts around the solution just that give other people, and that the other people could be your future self, you know, context to what were you thinking of, and, and just it's verifying your work kind of as you go forward. Now, a related thread. Um, I had Gene Kim on the show recently to talk about DevOps, and we were talking about continuous integration. This is another aspect that requires lots of automated tests. You just mentioned it earlier, where every time you push a change, you have that change go through all these automated tests. And this is kind of needed to move fast, because if you get continuous integration, you can kind of decouple your architecture. Yep. Um, and, you know, different people can have responsibilities for different things and can work in a fast, decoupled fashion with non-dependent um, you know, interactions. And my sense is that there are all these companies for whom this digital transformation that they're trying to undergo, like, you know, I talked to Gene Kim about all these older companies that he works with, that they have all this code that is in a legacy status. It's code that is not automated, and yet there are people, it's a code, code without automated tests, and yet there are people hacking on it. How can you bring this type of company back to a place where it has enough test coverage? When you get this, when you find, when you, uh, at Corgi Bytes, you know, when you interact with these companies who are perhaps really old and have a lot of legacy code, are, you know, is are there situations, well, actually, I heard your interview with Scott Hanselman, you mentioned that there are situations where there is a, a point of no return, but what is that point of no return? How do you know that a company is in a place where it just can't ever get back to having enough test coverage? Yeah, so so I actually think about it as less of test coverage because you can you can add that, right? Um, but it's really more about functionality, right? And it's it's is what you have today does that meet the needs of what you need in order to exist in the market, right? So it's I think of it more as a business need. So it's like how how well does the software in its existing state um, meet the needs of your customers and things like that. And for some people, I mean, I, I have conversations with people all the time and they're like, the business logic is awesome, but it all runs in wind forms, <laughs> right? So like, or it's all in an access database. And it's like, okay, 
that's awesome. And that's how awesome is it that you grew this big company with that technology? That's super scrappy and you should be proud of it, right? And now it's this idea of like, in order for you to move forward and in order for you to not be outpaced by your competition, we're going to go ahead and, you know, add that. So it's, again, it's like, it's not looking at the code just as the code or the test just as the test. I think it's really important to look at everything, including the business logic of a system. Um, because that's really what I think test-driven development um, and tests really help to preserve is that business logic. Um, and just verifying that, you know, that you're bringing all of that over. Because what I've seen a lot is when people do kind of these big rewrites with all of the best intention, um, there are, I've seen where there are bugs that have morphed into features in the business side, right? <laughs> like what is, what is, what looks in the code like a bug, users have come to depend on that as a feature, right? <laughs> so, so it's taking things just slowly and incrementally. And then there will come a point of no return, right? So either like, so we've had instances where, but, but it's a business decision, right? It's, it's very rarely kind of the technological decision. So I'll give you two examples. So the one that I talked about on Scott Hanselman's podcast was with a, a startup and they really, they had built out kind of their prototype, but the CTO was dogmatic about using, um, uh, web forms for, for .NET. He was just like, this is what I want. This is what I know. And we're like, mm, that's not really how most modern websites are built today, but okay. Right. But they had no users yet. So it made no sense for them to keep that and to move forward because that was going to really impede their progress. Right. They hadn't built out all the business logic yet. They didn't have users who were really depending on that. So in that case, and it was preventing their recruiting because they were having, you know, all of these people who were applying for more front end positions and they were expecting, a, you know, an architecture where they could build things restfully and they weren't able to. And so, you know, from the CEO's perspective, she was like, OK, the CTO and all of the engineers that I'm hiring, like, just aren't getting along. And so they brought us in to kind of do an audit and figure out what's going on. But again, a lot of it is kind of the people side of things. And so what we recommended was um, it ended up being where the CTO resigned um, and they got a new CTO. And um, and now, like, in that case, they ended up scrapping web forms because it didn't make sense for their particular situation. Um, one thing that we say at Corgibytes a lot is craftsmanship in context, right? So the idea of whether or not to preserve a system or, or demolish it really has to do with the context, especially the business context. Um, so in that case, you know, they, they scrapped, they started from scratch, they've got, you know, everything that's nice and modern, and now they're off to the races. Um, and so there's a, another instance where we inherited a, a project and it had, it had a lot of business logic. Um, and so with them, what we did was we built it out slowly over time and just kept being very vigorous about what features are not used, right? And so we looked and, and said, okay, there is a lot here that was built and no one is touching these features. And so what we ended up doing was basically kind of like the equivalent on the software side of taking a house and tearing it down to the studs, right? So like for the most part, the architecture stayed the same and we kept a lot of it, but a lot of the kind of cruft that had built up over time, we blew it out and then we were able to upgrade really fast. I think they were on Rails 2 something when we started and we were able to go straight to rails four in like under a few days because we had got but that would have that process would have taken much longer had we kept all of those features and so again it's like if they had a user base where everyone was using those we, it would have taken longer but it's always going to be a decision that's driven by the business and it's driven by what's the return on investment of this decision. Um, and there are definitely situations where it's like, look, people use this stuff every day. Like I cannot, you know, and in that case, it just takes a much longer time. It's not that it can't be done, but, you know, think about 
that's why the analogy of the house comes in really handy. It's like you can you can remodel it one room at a time kind of over the course of a weekend and it'll take you a few years, right? And it's not as disruptive to your day-to-day life. Or you can move into a hotel, get it all blown out, right? And and really work on it. So so those are just kind of some different ways that you can work with software too. But it depends on what your situation is. And and so um, you know, it's hard to give kind of a blanket answer. Um. So you have mentioned that you get a lot of calls from these types of CEOs who they're in a situation where features used to take just two to three weeks to push, and now they're taking like 12 weeks. It's taking a really long time to get anything out the door. The developers have become unproductive. What happens in that span of time between when features can get pushed out quickly and when features start to take a really long time? What happens that leads to such an unproductive culture? What are the the, the trends that you see? Yeah, so I see a, I see a few trends. Um, first is this idea of secrecy, um, where it's like I don't want to tell anybody what I'm working on because you know there's a feeling of risk, right? And so having a having a culture where transparency isn't uh, really a, a value, a core value of the company. Um, is is one because then you know knowledge stays inside people's heads and it's and it's really hard to extract whereas if you have a culture based on transparency then you know you know whatever people are doing they're usually they're documenting their rationale they're keeping wikis up to date you know they're updating readmes and things like that and so you know it's it's that kind of stuff where it's like somebody will have written a readme but then you know a new person comes on board and it's like, wow, this is totally wrong and totally out of date. And now I've got to spend three days trying to figure out how to doc, how to set up my dev environment when it really could have taken three hours if, you know, this had all been explained properly. So, so it's this idea of just like focus on features, focus on features. That's the only thing that's important and nothing else matters. Um, and so another core value that we have is that communication is just as important as code. And I truly believe that. And when we think of communication, there's like verbal communication. There's like, you know, having things on screen hero or, you know, this is an example. But but a lot of times it's the asynchronous communication that we we kind of just take for granted. And there's so much of this as software developers, right? Like, you know, like I said before, you know, your, your Git you know, descriptions, your, you know, and commit messages, right? Mm. Like your pull yeah, requests, these are, these all are, of those things. Like, do you just do a thumbs are, up or do you explain like why something really works and like get into a nuanced discussion? That That is how you move fast. Well, these are the communication structures yeah. that you talk about. You talked about in that post, that first round blog post. Uh, you said that certain communication structures in an organization can lead that organization towards building technical debt or building technical wealth, depending on the communication artifacts that they build up. Um, yeah, what, and that's, what are not, some of those? that's not me just making that up either. Like that's that's a computer science law, Conway's law. And, um, you know, if you hang out, like we actually, so I have a podcast called Legacy Code Rocks and like one of, <laughs> we actually made a joke that we might need to make a drinking game because every time we go up for every time that Conway's law is, is mentioned because it seems like every guest we have on the show, it's like, it's such a theme. And it, it, and the idea is that your communication structure, your code base will mirror the communication structures of your organization. So if you have a flat hierarchy that like is self-organizing, guess what? Your code base is going to be likely something that is easy for people to work with. It's decoupled. It's got that modern, nice architecture. But if you have a very rigid command and control kind of hierarchy, you know, guess what? That's what your code base is going to mirror. So a lot of times, like we work on projects mostly where we can work directly with the CEO. Um, because so much of working on a legacy code base is getting buy-in from the CEO that their culture needs to change. And that's a big conversation. So I think what happens is that, you know, the engineers are sitting there and they see this like huge problem and yet feel powerless to overcome it. And so, you know, my goal in writing on the first round blog and like really targeting, you know, the executive teams who have 
a great understanding of the business knowledge is trying to demystify this this landscape of legacy code because it's it's really not that complex. It's like, you know, from a business side and it's worth investing in if you want to stay competitive. Yeah, and that's I think that's what this whole DevOps movement is ultimately about. Um, yeah, I've been doing shows about DevOps for the last year and trying to get a handle on what exactly is going on there. And talking to Gene Kim, it does seem like a lot of this, you know, you have to, in order to get that cultural change, you oftentimes do need that CEO or executive level buy-in because you need such a dramatic cultural shift. Um, so, you know, I, I, I would love to talk more about the company Corgi Bytes itself because it's I find it a fascinating company. Um, the mission of Corgi Bytes is to continuously improve code bases through this software remodeling that you talked about. Um, so when you come in to remodel that software, are you are you always also trying to remodel the culture, or is that more of a is that more of a um, a premium service that that you offer? When do when do you have to remodel the culture as well? Yeah, so you do it at the same time, and I think one of the things is that we don't distinguish between them. So um, it's it's so interesting to me because people are like, "Well, what's the secret sauce? Like, you have to you must have some kind of proprietary." this and that. I'm like, no, it's just, it really comes down to being really, really good consultants, right? <laughs> so, um, so the first thing that we do is we come in and we do a, um, a technical discovery. We call it a code inspection. And so we have a bunch of things that we've built in-house where we look at, you know, but we're also using static analysis tools to measure things like, you know, duplication, cyclic complexity, churn, you know, um, all of kind of the standard things, test coverage, um, you know, and how many are unit and acceptance and integration tests um, and kind of what the ratio is there. Um, so there's, there's definitely like the diving into the code base side, but then we're also looking at the communication structures. So we're also looking at how much are you using asynchronous communication versus synchronous, right? Like how much of your documentation happens or how much of your communication happens in person ver and is never documented and relies on just kind of, you know, tribal knowledge versus it's, it's something that's well documented. Um, and so, so we don't see them as separate services. Um, instead, and this was this was the part. So when when we launched Corgi Bytes, you know, Scott had a lot of experience consulting, as did I. And um, when we when we talked to people initially about what we were going to build, I was like, Yeah, I'm going to find software developers who are polyglots and they can you know code in 15 languages, and they can manage projects really well, and they can communicate really well, and they can do that. And they and people laughed at me or like, Andre, these people do not exist. Don't you know that engineers are just the people who like sit in the back you know, sit in the basement and they talk about Star Wars and they have no friends. And I was like, no, I was like, how mean are you? Like that is just as much of a stereotype as saying that women can't code. And if we're going to make progress, we need to say like, you, you are a fully capable human being who is, you know, who can be trained in consulting skills. And that's what we've done. So Scott brings like the super deep technical knowledge on working with legacy code bases. And my background really is, I mean, before, before I came on board with Corgi Bytes full time, I was working with branding firms and I was, I was working with, um, scientists on how to take their academic research and then tell a story around it. Right. So I've, I've got the really deep, like, consultative and communication side. And so I think that's why Corgi Bytes has really worked because it's it's both me and Scott together um, and we've been able to learn from each other. So, you know, I've been working right alongside him coding. Like, you know, people ask me if I code and I'm like, yeah, I code, <laughs> right? And, and, but it's still funny because people ask me, but they never ask him, right? And so we, we just have these stereotypes in our brains. And this, the same stereotype happens with engineers where it's like, oh, well, I can't be a good salesman. I can't be a good, you know, consultant because I'm the engineer, right? And instead we say, no, we're going to look for people who, you know, operate under these values and we're going to give you the best tools that we know. So, so one thing that we do is we've, we started, um, there's some great research from, um, 
uh, Charles Spinoza and was published in the, um, the Harvard Business Review um, maybe a decade ago. And it's about promise-based management. And it's how the idea that you're not managing cards, you're not managing user stories, you're not managing tasks, you're managing promises with other people. And that requires three things, right? It, it's a meeting of the minds. So, right. So for example, being on this podcast, right? Like I, like we, we had some conversations ahead of time. It was like, okay, I'm going to show up at this time. Right. And we like set what the expectations were going to be. And then there's the fulfillment of that request. And then there's closing the loop. And so if you start to look at communication at the same, in the same like analytical way that you look with code, like that's a framework. That is a framework for managing your communication that you can apply in all sorts of different situations. And so I think the challenge is like, I've often been told that like my value is that I can, I can act just as comfortably in both worlds. Like I'm just as technical and analytical as I am like big picture strategic. And so for me, what I see is that there are the way that we've taught people how to do software has been in an only analytical way. And it has not really reached the people who think naturally more strategically. And then in the communication world, it's been the reverse. The communication books all talk about like this big picture pie in the sky stuff that, you know, people who really care about the details and, you know, implementing frameworks and, you know, the logic of it are like, what the heck are you talking about? And so, you know, it's, it's really about, recognizing that, you know, you can get just as technical on English and your consulting skills. And like somebody told me this week, I gave a, a talk at um, Agile DC where I talked about vulnerability and empathy and how that's been one of the keys to, to creating a culture that, that really works for our software developers. And people were like, I didn't know you could be so technical on a skill like empathy, right? Because I've done all of this research. So it's it's really, I think for me... But empathy actually takes takes a lot of active thinking and because yeah. because a lot of it is so non-intuitive. We're humans are not built to be uh, as empathetic as as uh, as we need to be. Well, certainly in our modern culture. Yeah, and but I think also like looking at the research, like there's a lot of research from Dr. Brene Brown out of the University of Houston, and like she has broken up empathy and really just demystified it. So that it's incredibly accessible. And it's like, yeah, you may have thought that this was a skill that was not accessible to you. But guess what? Everyone has empathy. You, you, it, you Like it is a human condition. You were born with it. If you don't have it, you are a sociopath. So it's like, but it's also a skill that you can build up. So I say to engineers who feel like they can't have skills like empathy, that's that's giving yourself a disservice because this is a skill you can learn it right like i've 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 just happened to go really technical and like i'll help you get to this point but at the same time there are people like me who kind of naturally have gravitated to some of these things and that's like saying that i can't learn how to code and we know that there's research that shows that that's not true so so part of this is just adopting a growth mindset where it's like, okay, look, we're all on the same team. We are all going to build software and we've got a diverse team for a reason because that's what's really important. And we know that that brings us more success. And so we're going to stop siloing each other and saying, I'm technical. I'm the engineer. You're the communicator. And we're just going to say, all right, we're all going to learn. Like we have, um, uh, we have Joe who came on our team back in February. And she was like, I could barely open a word doc. Like, I mean, she opened a word document, but that was like her, her level of technical skill. And now she's doing branching and merging in Git. And it's like, that's just what her job requires because we have our, um, we have our website in Jekyll and she manages it. And I was like, well, we're not going to build out a custom CMS for you. So you're just going to have to learn how to do this and you're going to have to learn Markdown. And it's like, okay, you know, and having her just, and now like she's, she's like, this is really cool. And now she's like taking a foundational programming course and she's learning how to do JavaScript. Right. But it's, yeah, it's, fantastic. Yeah. But it's not like, oh, well, you're the content person. So you can't sure. code. Right. So I would say the same thing to engineers. Like it's stop selling yourself short that you can't learn these consultative, consultative skills because you totally can't. Mm. Well, and speaking of consulting, I find it interesting that you have developed such a unique culture as a consultancy, and this is really, really hard to do, as I'm sure companies like Accenture or ThoughtWorks 
will attest to building a culture as a consultancy it, it, it seems counterintuitive because you're you, you know if you're just working at other companies constantly don't you just aren't you just a chameleon that goes to these different companies and adopts their their culture whenever you're embedded there but um that's that's quite the opposite of what Corgibytes is. You have a very strong culture. Yeah, I well, I I think so. I my job I see as CEO is to build a company where I you know it's the job I I want to keep. <laughs> you know, like Scott and I both started it because we had a hard time finding a company that we liked working at. So we were like, well, we'll just build it and hopefully other people will want to come too. Um, yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> I'm still by myself though. <laughs> yeah, and and I think it, it it takes a little while, but but part of it I think. And, and first of all, I'm honored that you mentioned places like ThoughtWorks and, and Accenture because I, I really admire what they've built. But I think a lot of it is is just being very intentional. Like I think of of culture just like a garden, right? And my job as the CEO is is really more of a nurturing role than it is a command and control role, right? Because my job, and I also think of myself as my developer's agent, right? So like I hire the absolute best people I possibly can, like the most talented developers who I think have all of these great skills. And we're up to 12, we're a team of 12 now. And my job is like to go out and find you the coolest projects that you are going to have a blast working on, right? So kind of like a movie actor, it's like, okay, you're the star. And my job is to find you the right screenplay so that you can really shine. And so for me, it's been about getting to know everyone. And like, you know, we've got some folks who have really deep embedded systems experience. And so like, I was talking to her today, and we had a, a project where there was a homegrown database with no documentation. So she's like diving into the binary files. And she genuinely feels like a kid at Christmas. Because and. And like a lot of people would hear that, like I, and they're like, that sounds horrifying. I would never want to do that. Right. But it's like for her, that project was exactly the right fit. So for me, a lot of it is about that people management and just genuinely caring and recognizing that there's, there's a lot of work out there that needs to be done. There is, there is no shortage of legacy code that needs to be updated. Um, <laughs> so, um, so it, it's really is like, you know, what do you want to work on and I'll help you find it. Um, but it's kind of been a reversal of the roles. And I think that's one of the things that makes, makes our culture strong. You quoted this author, Robert Herney, in a phrase that I liked. The quote was, the object isn't to make art, it's to be in that wonderful state that makes art inevitable. Yes. And that makes it sound like the goal is about, and I'm sure this speaks to your team as well as the companies whose cultures you help to craft when you're consulting with them. It sounds like your goal is as much about crafting the culture, which is that state that makes the art inevitable, uh, as it is about crafting the software. So you're not dropping in and fixing the software. You're dropping in and, and ameliorating the culture as you as you also work on the software because that is because the goal is like that quote to make the make create that state yeah. where the art just happens naturally. Yeah, and I heard that quote first from Woody Zool, who um, created the uh, He's a um, mob programming. So he created the, the mob programming kind of style and, and speaks about it. And he's a very close friend of mine. And um, we've... So what is mob programming? So mob programming is the idea. It's, it's all the brilliant people working on all the brilliant things all at the same time. So imagine you've got a team of five software developers, right? Kind of the traditional way that you work is like everything's divvied out and everybody takes a task and then they all work on it individually, Right. And so with mobbing, what you do is you bring everybody in together and everybody solves, everybody just works on those five tasks just one at a time. And so you've got the entire team's collective knowledge. And it sounds like it would be a drain on resources, but every time we implement it, and now, I mean, that's that's a big way that, that we work, is especially with complex problems, is you have um, everybody comes together and they all bring a perspective and then you're able to move forward much faster. And, um, and in this way, you actually introduce much fewer bugs. Um, you know, the team is happy because it's just a very calm atmosphere. Like there's no feeling of frenzy or like, oh my God, let's rush everything around. Like that, it's just like, we're calm, we're steady, we're doing good work, everybody's happy, like, it's just very chill, which, which is nice, you know, and that's, I think that's the biggest thing is that, like, 
um, you know, keep mentioning core values. One is another is um, calm the chaos. And the idea that you can't make these complex, big decisions, especially about, you know, when we're working on safety or mission critical systems, like you really need to have a calm minds so that you can you can approach things correctly um i was really inspired by like um reading about luminaries and kind of how they would solve problems and one of the things einstein would do is that when he got stuck he would go play his violin and so for us the culture that we've created is based around three pillars it's based around autonomy balance and trust and or, you know, so I, um, and empathy. So autonomy, balance, and empathy, and um, which creates trust. But the idea is that you need to have the autonomy to be to trust, to know that you can, if you need to go for a run, because it's like, that's how you're going to solve your problem. You need to feel empowered that you can go do it. So like, um, you know, that's, that's built into our operations is that, you know, I don't chain people to their desks all, all day. I, like we are, we are not, it's not about the keyboard time. It's about getting results and solving the problem. And sometimes you just have to step away, breathe, think. Like we have yoga at our office. We do yoga five times a week and we're a remote team. But we have um, we have a fan fantastic yoga instructor, Gabby, um, who may be taking on more clients. So if anybody's listening and wants to hire her, she may be available. <laughs> but she... Use referral code SE daily. There you go. Cool. And um, But yeah, she... Um, she does virtual yoga. So like, even though our team is spread out all over the world, like just taking 20 minutes to breathe and recenter yourself and do some stretches to kind of counteract you being hunched over at your computer. Like I've literally had things where I'm like, I can't do yoga. I'm too busy. Oh, I'm so frustrated. But then I'm like, no, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And wouldn't you know it? Like, as soon as I come back, I'm like, wow, I'm way more productive. Right? No, I, I do, I do that. I do that with exercise. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I, you know, I exercise twice a day cause I have got a lot of problems. <laughs> you know, you get, you gotta, you gotta work out those problems when you, uh, when you go and do your, your violin playing or your, um, exercise or your yoga or whatever. Um, and okay. So I, I want to wrap up. I, I have one last question. So I, I think something that underscores this discussion we're having is that there's a lot about the maker culture that throughout history has been revered. You know, we revere the makers, but you talk a lot about the menders, the people who fix things. Are there any historical menders that you find inspirational? So I think, you know, I, I am a huge documentary nerd, and um, I, I watched a documentary about a year ago by Steven Johnson on PBS called um, How We Got to Now. And I wish I could remember the name of this person but who did this. But when Chicago was first getting their, um, their like, first sewer treatments and, like, under, like, installing all of the plumbing, um, they had a problem because, like, people were using the city and, like, they, they didn't want to be able to, like, dig things. And so there was a person who hopefully you can link to it in the show notes, but the, there was an engineer who looked at using, um, railroad lifts and, um, what they did was they actually raised the city using all of these railroad lifts. So it was still useful, but then they were able to put all the plumbing underneath it. Um, and I just thought that was a really innovative way to, to approach it. And I, th and I think those are the people that like are the unsung heroes, right? Like, because that's a really big deal to get sewage treatment and water treatment to a whole city, right? And, you know, the approach, it worked, it was innovative, it, it wasn't too obstructive, you know, they were, they were able to get it done. And I think that's the thing too, is um, when you do mending really well, nobody notices, right? When you, when you're a maker, there is usually a big launch with a lot of cheer, um, but the thing I like about working with menders is that they tend to be some of the most humble and, you know, gracious people that I have ever met because they're not out there for the fame. They're not out there for the glory. It's about doing the work and doing it really well and knowing that you're making a big difference to society. And so a lot of times, you know, you're not going to hear about the menders, but their work is definitely there. Um, and once you hear the stories, you're like, wow, I'm so grateful that that happened. <laughs> 
So, and I think that's what Great we example. are, we're trying to do is just like, you know, I, I know that legacy code isn't sexy. I know that it's, you know, but it's important. It's really important. Um, you know, as you know, it's important to maintain the, um, you know, IT infrastructure that, that we've built because we, as a society, just really rely on it. And it's not possible to just scrap everything, like from a business sense and a project management sense, like that's just silly. And so, you know, the way that we're going to work through this and to improve systems is through a lot of the DevOps stuff and just really creating a culture where it's like, we're going to mend and we're going to make everything better. And we're just going to focus on remodeling and modernizing and, and making things better. Great. Well, uh, Andrea, this has been an awesome conversation. I, I liked reading your article. I liked preparing for this show. And I wish you the best with Corcubite. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was a really fun conversation. I had a blast. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash S-E daily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.